Thanks to everyone who uh, is dialed in uh, today. My name is Blake Rutherford, and I'm joined as always by Mark Alderman, the chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Howard Schweitzer, the managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Mark Howard, great to be with you guys. Thanks, Blake. Blake. Uh, and happy holidays to, to you and to everyone. Um, we are uh, continuing uh, our discussion of the incoming administration of President-elect Donald J. Trump. Um, but before we get to um, some of the marquee developments uh, over the course of the last few weeks since we were all together, I, I want to just sort of take stock, Mark, and I want to begin with you in, in sort of the state of transition from an outgoing administration perspective. We have, we will, and, and a bulk of this call today will be dedicated to uh, to the incoming administration, but um, you have known and been connected to and served this administration, and it is coming to its end. Um, I thought I would just get your thoughts and perspectives on what's going on in the White House these days. Well, other than packing, <laughs> I, I think what's going on is that the transition is taking place, Blake and Howard, uh, really on three levels and in at least two different places. You have the transition taking place in Washington, D.C. That's the presidential transition team that is largely led by Mike Pence and people that he has put in place there, of course, with the president-elect. And they are looking at 4,000 positions to be filled. So it's that level of transition that is interacting to a degree with the outgoing administration. I think the headlines there are twofold. One is that the degree of interaction is not especially intense. And that is of concern to some members of the outgoing administration. And headline number two is that there is clearly going to be a clean sweep through these political appointments. Witness the questionnaire that went to the Department of Energy asking for names of people who were involved in climate change conferences. So there is the D.C. level. The second level is the Trump Tower level, where cabinet positions, agency heads, are being vetted. I don't think the White House has a whole lot to do with that. But then you get to the actual presidential transition between President Obama and President-elect Trump. And I am told by people who know that there is a lot of communication between the two of them and that they are getting along in a way that uh, I think wasn't predictable just as the entire election wasn't predictable. But the president is on a tightrope because just as he is trying to work with the president-elect, he is also trying to leave him some corners that he can't get out of most especially the intelligence report on Russia. So that's the big picture from the outgoing administration. 
Still politics. Yeah. Um, Howard, let's talk about the incoming administration. Um, and I'm going to get to appointments in, a, in, in certainly in a minute. But um, but just kind of on a macro level, um, what is what's happening at, at Trump Tower? What's happening at the Trump transition office? Um, just sort of give us give us a sense of the dynamic. We know what we what we see on television, but from an insider point of view. Yeah, I mean it's slow, Blake. Uh, for one thing, you know we're seeing the. Uh, potential nominees and very high-level and impressive people circulate through Trump Tower. But as we predicted it would be during our call series running up to the election, they weren't really prepared for the transition. And as compared to a more traditional candidate and candidacy, you didn't have the apparatus, the transition apparatus being built up alongside the campaign um, that you'd expect to see in, in other times. So so it's slow to develop. While I think the um, vetting and, and nomination process at the top of the agencies is taking shape nicely and, and moving um, apace, as Mark said, there are thousands of jobs to fill. And, and they're key. And so, so I would say it's slow. I think New York and D.C., um, Mark, you're absolutely right, two transitions, um, not um, the world's greatest communication between the two. Look, Trump Tower is the center of, of the transition, not, not the transition office. Um, it's the center of the key, key decision-making, and that's going to... That's going to remain the case until he's inaugurated and perhaps beyond. And, and from that perspective, Howard, I mean, how do you sense that? Because um, we'll we'll certainly talk about some some policy directives in mm-hmm. here in a minute. But but just from I mean, you've seen transitions, you know, from from the inside out. How how would you rate this one so far? Again, I think it's it's going slowly, but they're taking it seriously. They've got the landing team showing up at the different agencies. Um, you know, I know Mark, you alluded to that report coming out of the Department of Energy, um, but it's um, you know, they're taking it seriously. Look, it's in my experience, having done this three times, until uh, until the administration is in power, has the reins of power, has their feet planted on the ground, um, they're not really governing. And they call it a transition for a reason. It's a, it's a change. It's a, it's a movement into power. Uh, you know, I think we've seen some pretty extraordinary things from the president-elect that, um, like the carrier um, move and the One China issue um, and the call with the the um, leader of Taiwan, uh, some things were that are pretty extraordinary. But in general, I think, notwithstanding the fact that they're behind the curve because they started slowly, it's going fine. It's proceeding, I think, Blake, in a very Trump-like fashion. It is a little slow down below because he didn't pay as much attention to that as. Because they didn't think he was going to win. Of course, of course. But at the same time, you have a very active president-elect. 
he is not simply waiting his turn to take the reins of power. As Howard said, you have the carrier deal, you had the Boeing tweet, you had him showing up at the Army-Navy game and acting like the President of the United States. I think he himself is stepping very strongly and very publicly into the role. And I think that's what you would expect from Donald Trump. And he's going to continue to, to do that as president. Yeah. One of the things that, that we've seen, and, and, and Mark, you touched on um, a few sort of key, key developments during this transition. One I wanted to get your, your take on, Howard, was, was the fact that Trump over the weekend came out and said, look, I don't need a daily intelligence briefing. Um, does, how much weight should we give at this stage of the process to the necessity of any president-elect? And Mark, I want to get your perspective because you certainly had some insight when a, a young uh, president-elect Barack Obama came into office. How much weight should we give to the fact that Trump is, is not taking a daily intelligence briefing? Not much. I mean, he's, really? he's got, in my opinion, he's got the responsibility. The buck stops with him. Um, he he owns this, and he can't shed that ownership. And I I think he's going to figure out what he needs to do to to be president. And I'm not particularly concerned about the fact that he's making judgments. Um, about getting less than, uh, you know, not getting an intelligence briefing every day. And look, I'll tell you, having been in government a long time, that it is, it is not a bad thing for somebody to be questioning, somebody to be questioning for the president-elect to be questioning the necessity of doing things the way they've always been done. The worst thing you can hear in government when you ask a question about why something is being done a certain way is that's the way we've always done it. And whenever I heard that in government, that was my signal to go deeper. He's going, he's going to ask tough questions. He's going to challenge conventional norms, and that's okay. That's okay, and I think you're half right, but I think there's half of this that is of great concern. The half-right part, I think, is the daily briefing is not constitutionally required so long as the president-elect is set up with those around him informed and available. Whether he himself receives the daily briefing or not, I think, Howard, you're right, it is of less concern than the other dimension of this which is that the president-elect is very publicly and very extremely rejecting the intelligence community as a reliable source of important information. That is of concern, whether it's daily or however often he's briefed. But this whole controversy over the CIA assessment of the Russian hacking, I find it, and I think a number of prominent Republicans uh, have said they find it uh, to be the same, I find it very troubling that the president-elect is 
calling the CIA ridiculous. I will give him points. The the line about it's the same organization that said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that was a great line. He gets points for that line. But the content of his rejection of the intelligence community as a source of reliable information is, th- is something that is beyond just not doing things the same way they've always been Look, done. Look, I, I just I've transitioned three times between I've transitioned between three administrations, and there's a huge difference between running and transitioning and governing. And when he's the president of the United States and he owns the responsibility, he's not going to reject the United States intelligence apparatus. He's going to rely upon it heavily. And I, I just, I'm not concerned about that. Let's talk well, about this guy will be in charge. So presumably he will be getting uh, intelligence that is more agreeable. No, no, that's not the way, Mark, that's not the way it works. I mean, there's a... There's his point about the Bush administration was fair, but we don't have. To, this isn't about history. <laughs> this is about the but future. Let's talk. Let's talk appointments because this is certainly the thing that has been driving headlines over the last several weeks. Um, you know, certainly don't want to run down a laundry list of of whom the president elect has has identified as as his candidates for certain positions. But Howard, I wanted to. Wanted to give you a chance. What what appointments just generally have stood out to you? Uh, Wilbur Ross for Commerce and Mattis for Secretary. I mean, it, they, like they've all stood out in the sense that none of these people have experience running the civilian side of government. So they all stand out from that point of view. And Trump knows that, and he's going to account for that at the at the second layer of, of appointees. But look, I think you've got some, some really accomplished business people and, and accomplished people from other walks of life. You know, Wilbur Ross has an incredible track record of uh, restructuring companies and investing. General Mattis, although there's this issue around civilian control of the military, um, is highly respected and, and widely regarded as, as a, a thoughtful um, individual. Um, Elaine Chow, Secretary of Transportation, designee, and the wife of the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, um, served in the Bush administration, highly, highly regarded by people on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, there are some other nominees to be or, or nominees that are, um, uh, well, I should also mention the Treasury Secretary, Mnuchin. Um, yes, Trump's campaign chairman, finance chairman, but um, a banker, somebody that knows financial markets, Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs, apparently going to head the NEC, um, you know, certainly knows the economy and knows the, knows the financial markets. So I, I could keep going. I mean, you've got people like Betsy DeVos at the Secretary at the Department of Education, Secretary of Labor Puzder, and Tom Price for HHS that are more um, 
further along the ideological spectrum. But look, I think by and large, it's been a good process that they're running. I think he's taking a look at people across the political spectrum, and he's coming up with a, a pretty darn good cabinet. Mark, what stands out to you? Well, what stands out most to me as an overview of his appointments is that to a man and woman, these people are all part of the government business complex that has run the country throughout all administrations. This is not a populist cabinet. These are people who are very conservative, who have very definite views about government, about the limitation in most cases of government. But these are not people from the populist movement that put Trump in the White House. Obviously, his senior strategist may or may not be an exception to that. He's as much an enigma as he is an exception. But everyone else is from the aristocracy, if you will. Billionaires, generals, CEOs. And I, I think, to Howard's point, that shows a certain level of responsibility that the president-elect is looking for in these appointments. But no one should mistake their political ideology. These are people who, while not populists, are, are most certainly not coming to Washington with a democratic agenda, although some of them I, have I, been Democrats. Some of them are Democrats, including, by the way, the president-elect. I mean, Mnuchin, Wilbur Ross, Gary Cohn, they're, I mean, that's the economic let team, me, but me, they're, let me ask. they're not ideological conservatives. They're not even Republicans. So I, I don't know. I don't, I, I just, I don't agree that it's coming. a very conservative. There are some con- strong conservatives on the list, but I think it's across the ideological spectrum, well, much more than I, I expected. That's fair, but they are certainly not the populists that the movement no, that put him in office, uh, I think, might have expected. And the swamp is right. is hardly drained. Howard, <laughs> Howard, in terms of in terms of the uh, the nominees, which ones at this stage would you anticipate experiencing the biggest challenge during confirmation? Tom Price and Scott Pruitt. For EPA, I think those are the two. With with if Tillerson gets the nod for Secretary of State, as it looks like he will, put put him in that mix too. Um, but but I think Price because of his conservatism, and Pruitt because of his opposition to the agency he's being um, entrusted to to run the EPA, and and just on on climate change. So those are the two. Um, and, and Mark... I agree with that. Yeah, I was going to say, Mark, you agree with that. And then... Uh, so and by the way, can I just say one more? There will be a sacrificial lamb. Right, so that's, two. Right. that's where I'm going. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, if you're, if, if you're, you know, the, if you're in Trump Tower and you're looking at, you're looking at the landscape, um, you know, what's your strategy at this point? Because you're, 
I mean, looking at it sort of optically, um, it, you know, it's easy to see how, um, you know, Democrats could align to want to stop, um, you know, one or two of these. You're starting to see some Republicans, for example, Senator Rand Paul's comments that, right. you know, that Ambassador John Bolton's not, in, in his words, not getting confirmed uh, for anything. Um, Marco Ru- Senator Marco Rubio, Senator John McCain expressing concern about about Tillerson at state already. Um, you know, how do you deal with that, Mark? Well, let's note that the arithmetic has actually changed just a little bit since we last talked. There was a Senate election in Louisiana. There's now a Senator Kennedy from yeah. Louisiana who is a Republican. So the head count in the Senate is 52-48. If two Republicans lined up with all the Democrats, footnote, you have to have all the Democrats in line for this arithmetic, then you're at 50-50 and Vice President Pence breaks the tie. So it will take three Republican senators and all the Democrats lined up to deny a confirmation. I agree with Howard, at least one will be denied. I think the strategy on the Democratic side is which one do you throw everything you've got at? I think the strategy in Trump Tower is whether you're prepared to lose one and and who's the backup if so. I'm I'm not sure Tillerson's going to be appointed. I think as Howard said, I think Price and Pruitt are the most vulnerable in a confirmation today. I think if the CEO of ExxonMobil becomes the nominee for Secretary of State, he becomes the most vulnerable. I don't think he gets confirmed. Maybe that's okay with the president-elect because maybe his number two choice is okay with him too. Maybe he doesn't make the appointment if he sees that it can't be confirmed. Yeah. That's that's something that's happening in Trump Tower. You can imagine <laughs> you can imagine what the various advisors are saying. I, I don't know what the president elect thinks about that. Howard, there has been a just a lot of attention on this particular appointment. I mean we've seen a number of names circulate through a number of dinners involving yeah. Um, candidates reminds um, me of a TV show I watched once. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so you know, what do you expect in terms of in terms of um, kind of rounding out the cabinet? There's that appointment left, um, and and then a few others. Where do you where do you think this goes as we head into the new year? Well, there's also a Supreme Court nomination to come, right? And that. Maybe the the mother of all battles. We'll see. We'll see who he puts forward. Um, but look, I think by and large, I mean there are a couple of positions left to to be filled. Um, by and large, it is taking shape. A couple may fall by the wayside. I don't think he's sitting there playing games so much. I think he's sitting there trying to, for a variety of reasons, loyalty, policy. Um, trust capability, making these picks, and I think he intends to get every single one of them confirmed. They just won't be. 
Yeah. Well, I, I mean, obviously, um, you know, to, to be watched and followed. I want to I want to pivot now to the policy agenda, um, which is is beginning to take shape. And, and Howard, I thought I would start with you. Um, you know, a lot going on in the uh, in the world um, from a big picture perspective. You know, what do you think the 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 key forces at play are that are guiding the policy agenda and what we'll see in the all important first hundred days? I think the economy is um, and globalization uh, are the key forces guiding um, the, the choices of the policy choices that are being made. I think when you step back and look at the election, um, those were the, the key drivers of, of the outcome the impact of globalization and the state of the economy. And in Trump's picks, I think, uh, while some of them seem perhaps counterintuitive, like the Goldman uh, presence in the cabinet, you know, he is picking people that he believes can get the economy moving. I think he's also accounting for um, the need to address the forces of globalization, which I think primarily uh, means means trade um, and and consolidating the power for trade uh, related policy in in commerce in Wilbur Ross um, as the incoming Secretary of, of Commerce, maybe uh, relegating the USTR to a less significant role than, than it's normally normally had. But to me, Blake, those are the, you know, he's got to get the people that voted for him. If they expect anything from this guy, they expect, they expect jobs, they expect economic opportunity, and they expect him to, to deal with the forces out there that they believe had denied them that. Right. And, and that's where this is headed. But now comes the hard part. As hard as it was for Donald Trump to get nominated, as hard as it was for him to get elected, as you were saying earlier, Howard, uh, very soon he will own it all and he will have to govern. And that is the hard part. He has to make some very hard policy decisions about what to pursue and what not to pursue. He has to decide which of his campaign promises to abandon, which of his campaign promises to take some action on and make it look good, and which he has to actually try to get done. For example, for example, his campaign was defined in my mind, in the minds of many, I think, by as much as any other issue, he was going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Well, that's not happening. And we haven't even heard any talk about that happening. He hasn't even appointed anybody who's going to try to do that. So that one is just going to go. He campaigned on a repealing the Affordable Care Act. He's going to do that on day one. Congress is going to do that on day one. That will be delivered. But the way in which it will be done will be hollow to a degree because it will be delayed uh, three years is the current talk while they try to figure out what to replace it with. So 
all of these campaign promises, and yes, the economy is at the absolute core, are now colliding with the reality that he's got to govern, he's got to work with Congress to get anything done, and even when Congress and the president-elect agree and can just roll the Democrats and make it happen, witness the Affordable Care Act, it's really hard to figure out what to do. So with that in mind, um, Howard, I mean, what do you sense from, because we, we talk often about the, the, the benefits to an incoming president getting a couple of early wins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, moving the needle, Mark talked about repealing the Affordable Care Act on day one, right? Um, from, a, from, a, from a policy positioning uh, perspective, what would you anticipate, or, or I guess we could flip it around a different way, what would you advise this president um, to tackle first? I would advise him to um, stop the process of regulating on day one. I mean, I think if you're if you're if you're focused on what's the one thing that speaks to the american people broadly it's overregulation by the government and i would just freeze everything that's going on on day 1 uh, you can't just snap your fingers and roll back existing regulations that takes time that takes a regulatory process and we're going to see that play itself out in a number of areas um but he's got to do some things out of the gate to just shut down the process, stall the process of uh, putting government resources into into regulating and, and ratchet that back. And and what's the consequence of, of that in terms of if you're, you know, it, I mean, certainly the regulatory climate touches all agencies, it touches all sectors. Um, what do you sense the the effect of that is? Certainly, it has it has optical value, um, no question. But as you talked about too, um, you know, scaling back regulations is is not an overnight process. No. It's it's complicated and involves in the details, right? Um, so that'll that'll certainly be interesting to see, Mark. You know, you the Democrats are looking at sort of their own position now as a as a minority party uh, across both the uh, well across the country, but but certainly um, minorities in both the House and the Senate. Um, but the Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer um, and the House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi still, as you talked about. Um, wield a great deal of power and influence in Washington. What do you sense from a Democratic perspective they're focused on policy-wise? Well, the Democratic minorities in both houses, especially in the Senate, where the 60-vote filibuster breaker still applies to legislation, will have a voice in what comes out of Congress. And I think what they are wrestling with is whether to take the McConnell approach that the Republicans did on day one, literally as the president was being inaugurated. Mitch McConnell was advising Senate Republicans to oppose anything and everything that the Obama administration did, and they were very true to that injunction. Uh, Whether to do that, whether to try to get some things done, and if so, what, and 
where this party is at this point. I think that what you will see is not the McConnell approach. I don't think that that is politically where the Senate minority is anyway, because too many of those members are up for election in red states, and the McConnell approach would not would not be popular. I think you're going to see the Senate minority leader work with the White House on the infrastructure bill. If I were advising the president-elect, uh, which through this morning no one has suggested I should do, <laughs> I would tell him to sit down with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and especially Chuck Schumer, and figure out how to get this infrastructure package that he has promised passed. It's not easy. Again, devil's in the details. Republicans want to pay for it with taxes. Democrats want actual spending. But if he can deliver an infrastructure program in 100 days, I think that is the most realistic and meaningful win that the Trump administration can uh, can. Uh, aspire to and, and I think the Democrats would would help him with that there, there is no democratic strategy there is no cohesiveness among the Democrats in Congress you've got as Mark said you, well 10 senators up Democratic senators up for re-election in red states in 2018 um, they're not on the same page as Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders no they're not. I mean, Chuck needs them to get reelected. Um, he's acutely aware of that. I think that is probably his overwhelming priority. But there is no cohesiveness among the Democratic Party. See the House of Representatives, which, yeah. over the objection of some members, reelected Nancy Pelosi, their leader, which right. is. Completely concur. Completely that, counterproductive. That there, that there is no coherent strategy, if, but nor is there on the other side of the aisle. One of the things that is no. so interesting as a political science matter is that you have a division between the White House and the Republican majority in Congress. You have a division within the Republican majority in Congress, especially in the House. And you have, and you have however many Democrats you have with nobody agreeing on anything. Let's be clear: these are still institutions, and I don't care who is in these jobs under what administration. The House and the Senate always hate each other, right? More than they hate the president. Um, it doesn't matter if they're all the same party or not. Um, the president still is going to exert executive power and it's going to irk the heck out of the United, out of the United States Congress. Um, and and the, Repub the quote-unquote Republican Party, you have a non-Republican that got elected as a Republican president right. of the United States. So, Mark, to your point, which I agree with, if I was um, Chuck Schumer, what I would try to do is line up with Trump on things like infrastructure that the Republicans will not line up with him on. I would try to take advantage of the division, as you're saying, exactly the, the right. division between the congressional Republicans 
and the White House, which will intensify, in my opinion, over time. Paul Ryan and and I try to be on the Trump side of that and cross your fingers with one hand behind your back and hope that you can do something in two years. Right. Yeah, I mean the, the the politics of that get get particularly interesting depending on where where there is alignment. Um, Howard, we've heard a lot about you know uh, whether that comes in the form of tax reform, whether it is in financial services, um, and I want to stay domestically before I mm-hmm. we look abroad. But but I just thought I wanted to get your comments. I mean, even healthcare. I mean. What are your what are your kind of general comments on on sort of those key policy issues? Let's start with tax reform, just because we 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 have heard whether it ends up being, but we've heard certainly it's a priority of the speaker. So I thought you might just comment on on what you see going forward for tax reform. Well, well, I see I see it getting done. Um, it is a priority. Ryan has his better way, a better way agenda, um, which Trump has been moving toward. Um, in the area of taxation. I don't think that um, there's a lot of, again, the devil's in the details, but there's not, everybody believes the tax code needs to be reformed. The point is whether um, they can do enough and do it broadly enough so they can get the the 60 votes, get the cloture vote, and and get this thing done, and I, I believe they can. I think we're going to see corporate tax corporate tax rates come down dramatically, and we're going to see a repatriation of this multi-trillion-dollar um, pot of money that's sitting overseas that companies like Apple haven't been willing to bring back to the United States because corporate tax rates are so high. And um, I think we're going to see a, a package that gets that done. Um, you know there. There's going to be a big push uh, from the Ways and Means Committee and the White House early in the year. It probably gets done in the back half of, of 2017. Let's talk about financial services, too, because um, certainly Dodd-Frank is, yeah. is, <laughs> is and has been um, a big issue uh, to the business community at large, particularly uh, the banking sector. What do you what do you sense happens um, in, in financial services generally, but yeah. then kind of more more specifically to, to Dodd Frank? I mean, they pick their spots. Yeah, I think there are changes that need to be made. Um, but uh, Trump said in the campaign, "Repeal and replace Dodd Frank." That isn't going to happen. It's not on his priority list. See his cabinet. Um, um, it. It, it, it isn't gonna it isn't gonna happen you've got um, there are things that are gonna happen kind of piecemeal you know the the banking community knows that they're they have their kind of pet items like the Volcker rule for example that that they may go after the CFPB but actually at this point the banking community doesn't want um, a repeal on mass the large they've, they've spent so much money on compliance so much money getting this thing getting getting geared up to deal with it that I don't even think they could deal with a, a repeal right now they want to pick their spots like the CFPB the CFPB which by the way is not being 
done away with, but which will be reformed, and it needs to be, that's the kind of thing that can get done in this political climate and will get done um, over the strenuous objection of one of the senators from Massachusetts. But it's going to get done. Um, but they're, So they're going to pick their spots, Blake. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the community, the reforms that Jeb Henserling, chairman of financial services, that the Republicans really want are more at the community bank level. Mm-hmm. They're they're freeing up capital to small businesses less than they are wanting to relieve the money center banks of the pressure they're under. Yeah, yeah. Mark, we talked about about healthcare, um, and we talked about the, the the repeal and replace agenda, but that it may take three years in trying to figure it out. Any other healthcare dynamics you sense? You know, we'll be talking about over the course of the next. You know, six months? Well, I think we're going to be talking about the replace part of the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. If, in fact, it gets repealed, this is really complicated because now you're into the weeds in parliamentary procedure in Congress. The Republicans cannot break the filibuster on the Affordable Care Act. They're going to have to use the reconciliation process, which is how the act came into being. That process is supposed to be a budgetary and tax matter. So it's very unclear how, for example, on day one, they're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act yet not do away with the ban on pre-existing conditions and not do away with the requirement that kids be allowed to stay on their parents' policies till 26. Two things that the president-elect has said he's keeping. How all of that gets done in the sausage-making of legislation is, is very, very unclear. Not to mention the fact that there are... 20 million people who have insurance under this act and sometime between now and the effective date they're going to have to figure out what to do with with all of that. The other issue though that I'll just quickly note in healthcare is uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid is going to get block granted. That again is in the weeds on government administration, but it fundamentally means turn in the power for the Medicaid program over to the states. You give the states a bunch of money and they figure out what to do with it. That is a big deal. That is a revolution in the Medicaid program from how it's been run since 1965. I think with Medicare, you have a Secretary of Health and Human Services nominee who is in favor of privatizing Medicare. You have a Speaker of the House who has a version of that with a voucher program. We're going to see how close to that proverbial third rail the Republicans are are prepared to go. I, I doubt they actually get there. But those two programs are going to be where all the health care action is, uh, along with the Affordable Care Act. Howard, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, um, about the Secretary of State nominee and, mm-hmm. and, and what might happen there. But we've got 
you know, some some foreign policy considerations that that this administration will will have to address. We most notably what to do um, about Cuba and 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 certainly the the relationship with China, which we've already seen is presented its own interesting dynamic. I wanted to, before we wrap up the call, get your, yeah. get your thoughts generally on, on what you anticipate um, early as it pertains to issues abroad. Well, I think people are over-interpreting some of what Trump is doing. And by that, I mean they're, they're looking at um, very superficially at um, the call with the Taiwanese leader, his tweet um, on Cuba, and they are assuming that he's going in a dramatic direction and a, taking a dramatic departure from um, past policy and President Obama's policy in the case of Cuba. Uh, he, he's doing what he told us he would do, which is posturing for negotiating purposes. He is no dummy. Uh, he knows he can't pull the rug out from under American Airlines, which just started flying to Cuba um, a couple of weeks ago. He knows it's not in the United States' best interest to um, alienate, um, re-alienate our neighbor on the um, off the coast of Florida. But he wants to cut a better deal. And that's what he told us he was going to do. And when he tweets that uh, that the deal is open for you know rollback, that's what he's doing. He's negotiating um, on on China. No. On China, um, you know, there too. He knows he needs China to bring North Korea into line. He knows he has to make good on his promise to the American people that he's going to do something about Chinese um, trade issues. So he's, again, he is telegraphing to the Chinese. He's telegraphing to the American public. No sacred cows. Um, Everything's open for revisiting and I'm going to do what I told you I was going to do which is negotiate and and that's what we're seeing. Mark? Yeah, I think in that regard there was a very interesting appointment last week that has attracted very little attention and that was the appointment of Terry Branstad, the governor of Iowa as ambassador to China. I think the Branstead appointment and the probable Tillerson appointment tell you a lot about the way that Donald Trump views the relations between our country and the two most important countries on the planet to us. He views these relations as personal. He appointed Terry Branstad because Terry Branstad a lot of years ago went to college with the president of China and has maintained a personal relationship. Other than that, Governor Branstad, the longest serving governor in uh, the country, would himself tell you he, he hasn't had that much experience with China. Tillerson obviously has had a lot of experience around the world, but his relationship with Putin 
which is going to cause him a confirmation issue, is, I think, an attraction to the president-elect and just confirms, as you were saying, Howard, that what he intends to do is posture and leverage and renegotiate these relationships in a very personal way. It's, it's him and maybe Tillerson against Putin, and it's him and Brandstadt against the president of China. But, but I think you can see how he intends to govern those two ultra-critical international relations from the appointments that he's making. The, the, the danger is doing trying to do too much here. I mean, look, I think, as I said at the beginning, the worst words you can ever hear in government are, this is the way it's always been done, anywhere, but especially in government. And, and Trump was fundamentally elected president because people believe he is not going to do things the way they've always been done because he called into question institution <laughs> institutionalism. Um, and, and we're going to see that play out, and that's really, really healthy. And even the bureaucracy inside these agencies that he will soon be running, the, the doers inside these agencies are happy for that breath of fresh air, Mark. But... but Gosh, I know you cannot try to do too much, well, and that that is what will crush this guy if he's not careful. Yeah, and, and certainly you you you've seen that um, from the inside. Both of you have. Well, I think we we have we have come to the end of this call. I did want to let everyone um, who's listening um, know that we're going to be rolling out um, an in-depth policy piece uh, very soon, and we're going to have. Uh, a series of updates to complement these calls as the transition uh, continues to unfold. So I would certainly encourage you uh, to not only stay tuned, but to stay in touch with us. Um, and uh, we, will, we will be in touch with you. Mark, Howard, as always, fun uh, to talk to you about everything that's going on inside uh, the, the transition of President-elect Donald J. Trump. Uh, I suspect when we are back together, there will be more interesting things to talk about, and I'm looking forward to that discussion as well. Uh, thanks and thanks, thanks to everyone for listening.